Wake up, world. You are now tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I'm your host, Devon Pouncey. We're here at the Pac West Center in beautiful downtown Portland, which is also the home of 1029 and 750 The Game. Be sure to subscribe. We're on iTunes. Just search Wake Up and Win with Devon Pouncey, and we'll be there. We're on SoundCloud as well for some of you that may not be Apple users or just prefer to use SoundCloud. We're there as well. You can search the same thing, Wake Up and Win with Devon Pouncey. Uh, I got Rodney back in here with me today. What's up, Rod? What's going on, it's y'all? Been, it's been a, been a little bit of time. It's, it's been two shows, but both shows is amazing. You, the you, ones before me, right? I right. like them. I like them a lot. Yeah. But I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Rodney was gone for a little bit. He was on a birthday break. Birthday. And uh, we also got a special guest here today. And this guy was at, you had a birthday recently as well, right? I did. Right. Well, happy belated. Likewise. Thank you. Thank what, you. what dates? Uh, before I, int- I'm going to introduce you and do a bio and everything, but I just want to see if the date's in line. What, what date was yours? Mine was September 11th. Okay. Oh, oh 9-11. September 11th. <laughs> yeah. I'm the fifth. I'm the fifth. That's okay. a tough date. So the special guest we have here is Dr. Jules Boykoff. Um, he's the author of three books on the Olympics. Most recently, uh, he wrote the Power Games, a political history of the Olympics in 2016. He has written on the politics of sports for places like The Guardian, New York Times, New Left Review, The Los Angeles Times, and Jacobin. And he's also a professor at Pacific University. Go Boxers. Mm-hmm. He was my professor he at Pacific professor. University. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, he's definitely somebody who's very near and dear to me, somebody I respect in this activist game. I like to call it. <laughs> and uh, like I said, we got Dr. Jules Boykoff here. So now that we are able to do a proper introduction, how are you doing today, Jules? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, first, before we get into kind of the meat of things, I want you to just kind of give your background. You're, you're an Olympic activist. You're, you're big on the politics of the Olympics. Kind of give us a background of yourself and how you got started and being so resourceful when it comes to uh, information that has to do with the Olympics. Yeah, well, thanks. I actually appreciate the opportunity because it gets me to say off the bat that I'm not some grumpadelic academic who doesn't like sports. I actually follow sports. I'm a huge fan of soccer and basketball, I suppose, especially. Uh, I grew up playing sports in Wisconsin. I played baseball, basketball, and soccer mostly, and I got pretty serious about it. You know, I, I did play for the U.S. Olympic soccer team, the under-23 national team, and international competition in places like France. It was a long time ago, Devon. It was <laughs> How long ago? <laughs> well, let me just put it this way. We played against the Soviet Union, so oh, they still wow. existed, all right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So, that was a little while back. Uh, but I had a, a nice professional career, including four years playing indoor soccer here in Portland uh, for a team called the Portland Pride, plays in the same place as the Blazers over at what I prefer to call the Rose Garden. And uh, so I have a background in sport, and I spent a lot of time doing it. I coached afterwards as well. I went back to graduate school while I was still playing professional soccer, actually, and got a degree for teaching, and I taught high school for a couple years, and then I pivoted toward a PhD in political science where a lot of my research was around the suppression of political dissent. So I looked at movements historically or contemporarily from Martin Luther King Jr. to the global justice movement of today and before and after those two. So I was really involved in that, and a lot of my friends from Vancouver just up the road here from us in Portland, we're saying, you got to come up here because there's a lot of suppression of dissent happening as we get ready for the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, the Winter Games. I went up there, I interviewed a bunch of people, and I found out there's actually a bigger story happening there. 
And the Olympics, in a way, were bringing together activists who hadn't really fought in similar struggles before because the Olympics are so huge. And so I kind of pivoted away from my repression research, uh, which was getting intense in other ways as well. (laughs) I couldn't handle the the calls. I'd get, you know, you want to know about the suppression of dissent? Someone would call, leave a message on my phone at work. Oh, I I used to be in the CIA for 40 years. Give me a call and we'll talk. And I was like, I don't have the resources (laughs) for this. So. So I kind of pivoted more toward full-time thinking about the Olympics and the politics of the Olympics, which allows me to think about things I really care about, such as political activism, such as sports, such as amazing athletes, uh, such as militarization of public space, and I keep my eye on the repression prize. So that's kind of the bigger, longer right. intro. So so was it your actual, was it more so the Vancouver Games that really got you into it, or was it your actual experience when you were a part of the U.S. soccer team that kind of thrusted your in, uh, your initial interest? That's a great question. I have to admit, though, I was 19 years old when I was playing for the Olympic team, and I was running up and down the field and having the time of my life, but I was totally oblivious to the bigger political machinations that were happening around me. So I can't take credit for figuring things out early. It was actually more during my time playing professional soccer because I had so much free time that I started reading into things more. So I didn't really know what was going on then, although I had little inklings because one time, for example, the U.S. Olympic team, we played in Santa Ana, California, and a huge crowd uh, came to the game and, and rooted against us, actually. So, you know, it was kind of wow. opening my eyes to the possibilities. We played in France against Brazil. Everybody booed for the United States. So something in my little 19-year-old brain started clicking back then that, hey, wait a second, people are rooting against the United States, and it seems like this not just our tactics and strategies. There's something bigger and political at work. Definitely, definitely. So, Mr. Uh, Jules... I see that Doctor Jules. Doctor Jules. Let me get it right. Let me get it right. Doctor Jules. Let me get it right. I'm correct. <laughs> I was reading your uh article in the LA Times and I see you talked a little bit about Brazil. And so uh I was wondering because I, I remember watching a documentary and it was kinda talking about how Brazil had built these new arenas and new uh hotels and places for the athletes to stay in five minutes away from there is poverty and it's very poor and after olympics was over they did nothing with those buildings mm-hmm. and so where do you think the money goes or how do you think that whole situation works yeah that's that's a great question rod and you know you're identifying what a lot of critics of these mega events like the olympics call white elephant stadiums so they build them up for these big events and then afterwards there's not the capacity to even maintain them in some cases let alone use them for sports Meanwhile, there's communities, as you say, nearby, favelas in Rio that were actually smashed down to make way for some of these venues. So, you know, I lived in Rio de Janeiro between August and December 2015, and I was back for the Olympics. And I met a lot of people who were actually displaced because of the Olympics from these favela communities. Their lives totally destroyed. There were 77,000 people who lost their homes thanks to the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. And so Mm. it's a huge problem with the Olympics. I mean, another example of that kind of displacement is Beijing, where 1.5 million people were displaced for the 2008 Summer Olympics. That's a lot of people. It is. It's a lot of people. It's like all of Portland basically getting displaced at one time. Wow. So, so you pretty much call it the Olympic gentrification. No, that's right. <laughs> you know, and people say it's the, the Olympics of gentrification and sort of this sort of iron fist of displacement. It's like the velvet glove of gentrification. We get the coffee shops, we get the beer pubs, but you get that kind of iron fist of total hardcore displacement of people. Since we're since we're talking about Brazil right now, we're ultimately going to get into 
the double allocation. You got Paris in 2024. You got Los Angeles in 2028. But I want to ask you about the vote buying scandal Mm -hmm. unfurling in Brazil over the Rio uh, 2016 games right now. Just kind of tell us a little bit more about that. We'll stick to Rio before we jump ahead to 2024 and ultimately 2028 in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's amazing what's happening in terms of what we're learning about this vote-buying scandal. I mean, it's a real big reminder that there's loads of money sort of sloshing through the Olympic system. What's happening right now in Rio is that federal police from Brazil in combination with French prosecutors are teaming up to, they looked into the house of a guy named Carlos Nuzman. He is the head of the Brazilian Olympic Committee. And they went into his apartment and they found a Russian passport, which some people think he got for voting for Sochi to get to host the 2014 Winter Olympics. They also found $155,000 in cash in multiple currencies sitting around his house. You know, just $155,000. So, yeah. And, and that was, you know, after he presumably knew that they were on to him a little bit. So they're they're thinking about how to prosecute this case. And. The scandal goes further, though. Uh, It involves some people in Senegal who have allegedly set up money to be floated toward them to get them to get African bidders to vote for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, which still hasn't happened, of course. So, you know, there's a lot of good journalists on the sniff for this one, and we keep learning more and more as we go. Okay, yeah, that that's that's pretty interesting. So. Now I do want to shift a little bit more into 2024 and 2028. It's just recently announced that mm-hmm. that it's going to be happening 2024 in Paris and 2028 mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. What are kind of some of your initial thoughts? I know you've written a lot, like he said, with the L.A. Times, and you've been writing a lot. And this is kind of your season since the decision has been made. You know, Olympics is obviously every four years. So it's something that we don't get to really talk about except for, you know, the four years that you have the Olympics, you have the Winter Games, uh, two in kind of in that middle section in the every two years. Well, you have it every four years as well, I believe, mm-hmm. the Winter Olympics, but in between the main Olympics you have uh, winter. So I want to know kind of what are your thoughts about what's going on in Paris, what's going on in L.A., and what are kind of your general thoughts on this happening is it a good thing is it a bad thing i mean what can we Mm -hmm. expect based on what we know so far yes well for your listeners that don't follow the olympics maniacally like i do and just kind of tune in for the olympics i think the place to start is the fact that there were really only two cities left in the bidding process for 2024 summer olympics and that was paris and los angeles those are the last two all the others have been knocked off by activist efforts or they've been torpedoed by referenda in various places, Budapest, Boston, Hamburg, you name it. And so they were really only left with two. And so what you saw was the bidders from Los Angeles, including the mayor, Eric Garcetti, Casey Wasserman, uh, kind of a rich entrepreneur from the L.A. area, kind of kind of guy who woke up on third base and thought he hit a triple. He met up with uh, Tomas Bach behind the scenes. Tomas Bach's the head of the International Olympic Committee. And he basically kind of they sort of floated the idea of saying, hey, what if we took the 2028 games in 11 years instead of those 2024 games? Well, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, was very keen for that. Because, as I'm saying, there are fewer and fewer cities that are game for the games. Mm -hmm. And so they thought, oh, we'll get these two cities. They have storied Olympic histories. And uh, we'll get them on the hook through 2028. Now, 11 years down the road is a long time down the road. If we just (laughs) click the clock back 11 years, 
Taylor Swift had just released her first album. Uh, uh, <laughs> keeping up with the Kardashians hadn't even started yet. It was a sad, sad era in some right. ways, right? Right. But, I mean, sad, it's, sad the point is, it's a long time ago, and so <laughs> I mean, then you project that forward in the future. Eleven years is a, a really long time, so it comes with some additional risks, I would say. But in general, the Paris bid and the Los Angeles bid at this point are relatively low in terms of the billions of dollars they say they're going to spend. But if we've learned anything from the recent history of the Olympics, we've learned that they essentially have etch-a-sketch economics, where they say it's going to cost one thing on the front end, they shake up the etch-a-sketch, and then they write a new number on the top. You guys know what etch-a-sketch is, yeah, right? I know what it is. I got a good idea. I know what it is. Okay, hey. very good, very oh, good. Okay, I know what it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, the point is the costs just go through the roofs through time, and so L.A. might be saying the games are going to cost $5.3 billion, but we can expect that probably will go up through time, especially because of the fact that they didn't even include the security Security budget in that they just sort of expect that the federal government's going to step in and give about two billion or more. So really, that bid's more like seven billion. So a little bit of shell game action on on the cost of the bids, but overall, the IOC is very happy getting both Paris for 2024 Olympics and LA for 2028. Okay, in the Guardian, you know the article you wrote in that one, Mm -hmm. I see since we're talking about LA. Say LA is about to discover that democracy and Olympics don't mix. Can you kind of dive into exactly why you feel that way? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, when the Olympics come to your town, normal politics get suspended and a whole host of special rules and laws get put in place. In fact, the host of the Olympics is required to pass a law that harmonizes local law with the dictates of the International Olympic Committee. And sometimes really weird stuff comes out of that. So, for example, Uh, The London Olympics, they had a law in place where the International Olympic Committee got to capture all the money from advertising and whatnot. And so you couldn't uh, advertise for the London Olympics yourself. So what happened was there was, for example, a small cafe in Plymouth that put what they called on their menu a flaming torch breakfast baguette. Well, they got cracked down on by the Olympic machine for a breach of the branding rules, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's just one example of how you have to sort of harmonize your laws, which really cuts into the liberty of everyday citizens, let alone people who just kind of want to get into the spirit of the Olympics. And the other thing that you saw in L.A. specifically that I was writing about in that essay you mentioned is that democracy kind of gets on shortcut mode. And so you had people who were ready to testify to raise questions about the Olympics in terms of how it will probably affect marginalized poor communities. And they didn't even get to speak at this L.A. City Council meeting. I watched right. it twice on, on, uh, online, and your listeners can check it out. And they, there was booze ringing through as they passed it without anybody being allowed to speak. And the, the other thing that I think we need to keep in mind, especially with Los Angeles, in terms of the question you're asking about democracy is how space, public space, becomes militarized to protect the Olympic spectacle. There's no question that the Olympics have become this huge machine that requires some kind of security. After all, uh, some terrorists use it explicitly as a target. In Sochi, for example, a guy named Doku Umarov, a Chechen rebel, said that the Olympics were a legitimate target. So they build up the security apparatus. But what that hap- what happens in the lead up to the games is a lot of the spaces where everyday people live, where poor people live in a city, mm-hmm. they get so I'm putting my fingers up to say cleansed with quotation marks around them, right? Yeah. And, 
And so air they, quotes. Air, air quotes. quotes. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you have this incredible militarization, and Los Angeles should know this as well as anybody because they were awarded the 1984 Olympics in 1978. That was the same year that the notorious police chief, Daryl Gates, came to charge with a sort of uh, series of uh, terrible acronyms like crash and trash, all about street hoodlums. I mean, that right, was what the right. SH stood for. And to get them off the streets and the SWAT teams were swooping in and this all culminated with the Rodney King beating. You know, this is what you get when you militarize the police and when you give them free reign and that sort of state of exception leading up to an event like the Olympics. Now, I'm not saying that was the only reason why why Daryl Gates was a, a horrible police chief, uh, but I am saying it was a contributing factor that gave him more freedom. And that's what the people of Los Angeles kind of need to look out for. That's what the people of Paris, any Olympic city uh, – same thing with Rio. I saw the intensification of the military police on the streets mm-hmm. of Rio as the games came came around. So that's just sort of what you have to pay when you have the Olympics come to your city, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about like today's political climate, for example. And obviously, we don't know exactly how the political climate is going to be when that time becomes more near, because that's not until 2028. But what are kind of some of your general thoughts on how things may be, you know, progressively during that time period, just based on patterns you may have Mm -hmm. seen throughout your research. And you've written a lot about it and just kind of, like I said, patterns and what you can kind of foresee going forward based on patterns and research. What can we kind of expect in 2028 based on what's going on right now Mm -hmm. and the way things have gone about in the past? Well, I think the place to start is to acknowledge that politics are really important with the Olympics. Every once in a while, some honcho from the Olympic movement stands up and says, we're not political, we're just about humanitarian stuff. Right. Everybody who really pays attention to sports knows that that's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Uh, But they will say that all the way through to the actual Olympics. But the truth is the uh, politics have already affected the games because – Most people who follow the bidding process think that Los Angeles actually had a stronger bid for the 2024 Olympics than Paris did. And the only reason that they weren't going to get it if there was a vote was because of the Donald Trump factor. The International Olympic Committee had no time for this America first stuff, for keeping refugees out, for excluding people from Muslim predominated countries. And, you know, these are the cosmopolitan elite from around the world, a bunch of barons and dukes and princes to be sure. But these are rich people from around the world who are on the International Olympic Committee, and they had no time for that. So politics has already intervened a little bit. Yeah. If Trump wasn't president, there was a pretty good chance L.A. might have got 2024. Wow. That's deep. So, so, I mean, with that in mind, you have to think, okay, we can't really predict what's going to happen in 11 years politically. Who knows? I mean, will Trump still be president? There's some major military coup, God forbid, and like he's still president and he gets his Olympics finally. I mean, that's an extreme example. We just don't know what can possibly happen. But the moment is wide open right now in the United States politically. And uh, we shall see. I mean, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles currently, has seems to have aspirations for the presidency. And a lot of people are suggesting he could be president in 2028, and this could be his that, capper moment. Yeah. Uh, but I think the point is prediction is really tricky business. And uh, But the trend line is costs escalate through time. Mm-hmm. You're going to get the militarization of your city if you decide to host the Olympics. Right. You know, And you're going to have a lot of social displacement. You're going to have a lot of money spent on the Olympics that could be spent on other 
causes of uh, harm in your society, homelessness, for example. Yeah, that's that's crazy. It's just crazy to think about because, like I said, you do think about right now we're in the Donald Trump era. You think about even from a general standpoint, not just speaking on Olympics when it comes to sports and politics, you're seeing stances being taken right now probably more than ever i mean obviously there's been different forms of stances being taken over time with um with you know discrimination in america's uh, oppression in america and things of that sort but right now when we do have a guy who has no political experience in office it's just opened up the floodgates mm-hmm. for more people to have a stance so it's really interesting to think about it from an Olympic standpoint and things like you said that people don't really know, like you said, on the trend line can happen with militarization, you know, with costs spiking up and things of that sort. So it's definitely interesting to hear from that approach. But now I want to kind of flip it more to just a general sports approach, because mm-hmm. I know you're you know, you're into sports, as we talked about in your intro, you were able to tell mm-hmm. in your intro, like, you're a fan of sports. You love sports. You are a professional athlete. You play college sports. You play for the U.S. national team. And at the time, it was really fun. But <laughs> it's always funner when you're playing. But right. but even still, I know you're into, you know, activism in sport and things of that sort. You've done work with people like Dave Zirin, who's mm-hmm. a really big name when it comes to the intersectionality of sports and politics, which is something that we focus on here on the podcast culture as well. But Mm -hmm. what's kind of your general thoughts on what's happening right now in the uh, intersectionality of sports and politics? I think we're in a really special moment for that intersectionality. You know, the focus of your podcast is your timing's perfect because there's so much going on. The reason why I think we're seeing so much is part of the reason is what you suggested before that you have a presidential administration in Donald Trump that has emboldened racists and that has basically made it so that athletes feel the need to speak out against just extreme, obvious racism. But the other thing I think is really important to consider here as to why we're sort of seeing an uptick in athlete activism is that there are vibrant movements. So my philosophy, my deep belief is that activist movements carve out space for athlete activist moments. So there's the movements that make space for these moments of sitting down for the national anthem, for example. So if you really want to understand it, you need to think about, well, what are the movements that are happening right now? Black Lives Matter, of course. There was the Idle No More movement in Canada that had a lot of steam for a while there, the No Dapple movement that was creating space for athletes to speak out on these key issues. And so um, speaking on athletes, a lot of people feel like athletes should just stick to sports instead of getting to political views and how they feel, do you think they should use their platform? Well, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all recipe for all athletes, and I certainly wouldn't ask any athlete to speak out if they weren't ready to do so at that particular time in their moment uh, of their life. But I do think if an athlete has thought about the issues and they would like to speak out, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, feel free to do so. And that's interesting because we've seen cases come about. Uh, we've talked about it on here, like Des Bryant, for example, mm-hmm. when he basically, you know, said he has a family to feed. And I think that's a good approach because a lot of the times we do get caught up in, like you said, the one size fits all or we get more so caught up in speak out, speak out, speak out. But some people may not know what to say, may not know how to say it may have something situational going on mm-hmm. in their life. So it's it's really interesting because although we support activism fully, I support activism fully. Like you said, if you 
have something to say about it, don't hold it back. Speak out on it. But you do see a lot of these athletes that that receive backlash because either they don't say something about it or they don't take the same approach as maybe another athlete would, like a Colin Kaepernick or somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, of that respect. And I think what's also interesting about our moment with somebody like Kaepernick is that when somebody does take a courageous, in his case, super well-informed stand on issues in society, we can now rally to his support in ways that athlete activists didn't have before through social media, through podcasting, through all sorts of mechanisms that we can, as just regular people, say, hey, we support this guy uh, that hopefully gives a little bit more weight and support for them as they move forward. Hasn't worked out for Kaepernick with getting a job yet, but, you know, Quarterbacks get injured all the time, and who knows when he's going to hopefully get picked up here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So lastly, before we get out of here, it's a question that I ask all our guests that come on. um, We're the Wake Up and Win podcast. As you know, you're somebody who supports the podcast Mm -hmm. as well, listens, supports, you know, give feedback, and we appreciate all of that. But we ask, you know, obviously, you know, when you got to wake up every day, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully. <laughs> but even outside of that, you know, everybody strives, usually people strive to win, strive to be successful. So is there anything that you do, rituals, reading, it could be anything mm-hmm. that you do when you wake up to kind of advance you into having a successful or a winningful day? There is, actually. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm the first person up in my house on most days. Okay. So it's quiet, just me and the cats. And I always walk out. I start the water for the coffee, but then I walk out and I face east and I just take a bunch of really deep breaths and I just think about that day and just hope it's going to be a good one. If there's something big I have happening, I sort of let it float through my mind and sort of watch a movie of it happening just how I want it to happen. And then when the water starts whistling, I walk over and get my coffee. That's how I start my day. Every really? Day. That's yeah. interesting. So very. so is it like, do you do like breathing exercises when mm-hmm. you're doing it? Is it yep. like a meditation type of a thing? or? Yeah, I guess it's kind of my own form of meditation, but I'm yeah. definitely really conscious of my breathing and just trying to breathe in the day as the sun kind of pops up in front of me or in most days, not even quite that yet. But yeah. it's thinking about coming over to the edge of the horizon. Yeah. So it's definitely conscious. Yeah. yeah I, start the day right. I love that. Have you told anybody how you start your day off? Have you told the podcast that? I, I have. You have? Yeah, huh? I have. Maybe so I need I, to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> I have a long a long time ago when I first started, and it's it's very inconsistent how I start my oh. Because now <laughs> I start my days off different than I started it off then when I initially told it because I got a radio show now. Right, right. So, so things kind of changed. Then it was more so working out. It was one point where I was doing, like, swimming and things of that sort. But now I'm up at 5 in the morning because I got to come in and prep right. for the radio show. So that's actually changed. My sleeping schedule has changed. So that's different. But is it something that you do? Because I don't think you've ever. I don't this think is I your have. first. Because this is your first time being on the podcast with a guest. Right. This is my first guest. Yeah. All so, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so is there anything that you do? That it, it's ca- going to sound cocky. But this is what <laughs> I do. I get up. I brush my teeth. And so when I'm looking in the mirror while I'm brushing my teeth. I tell myself I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm confident, and I'm finna have a good day. There you go. And I right. just kind of look at myself. It's not cocky about that. It's not cocky about that. Okay, and then I, I have this little, I just recently got it. I used to just say it, but now I got a, a little prop. It's like a sticker, and it say I'm handsome. 
<laughs> and I look at it. I look at him like I'm handsome. I look good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, like I said, mine's changed because now I, I, man, I get as much sleep as I can at, at night because in the morning I'm up 5 a.m. every day. So it's things have definitely changed as far as my sleep schedule. I'm grateful. I'm not complaining at all. I enjoy waking up and doing a radio show five days a week. And then my Saturdays, I just sleep in because that's about my only day that I really get to sleep in. But it was interesting because we had Jessica Luther on uh, last week's podcast. And she said she reads romance novels mm-hmm. because they are destined to always have a happy ending. Right. So mm-hmm. so when she wakes up, she reads ro- like she's very <laughs> into romance novels and she reads them. So it's just a question that I like to ask guests when they come on is kind of, you know, to lighten things up because we do dig into more of the political mm-hmm. things. But. Obviously, you know, the name Wake Up and Win is is universal. It can mean many different things. And I think a way to see that it can mean so many different things is just to ask every guest because we've yet to have the same answer once. Uh, Keeler came on, Mm -hmm. you you know, Jacqueline Keeler, obviously, Mm -hmm. and she uh, she does like a, a native type of a prayer. You know, so everybody just does something mm. different and it's interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have to let me know some of those breathing exercises <laughs> so I can do it one day. All right. <laughs> but Jules, I want to thank you for coming on to the show and dropping us with dropping us some gems and giving us some jewels to go away with. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, yeah. guys. I really appreciate the it, chance it, to chat with you. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for your continuous support as well. You've been a big supporter of the podcast and we'll definitely be having you on back here because this podcast isn't ending no time soon. And as things progress, we want to keep people updated and informed on what it is that's going on. So thanks very much. Rod's here, and I can leave you all with the only thing I know how to, and that is to stay woke and go in.